Tracy Dean with the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command's Army Research Laboratory. Welcome to What We Learned Today, a podcast where we talk with Army scientists and engineers about the science and technology that will modernize the United States Army and make our soldiers stronger and safer. Today, I talk with Dr. Piotr Franoschuk, the Army's Senior Research Scientist for Soldier Performance Neuroscience. He serves as an expert in computational methods of signal analysis and neuromodeling. Franoschuk, a native of Poland and now a U.S. citizen, joined the laboratory in 2011 and implemented his computational methods of analysis and modeling to brainwave signals recorded during Army-relevant tasks. He earned his doctorate in physics from the University of Warsaw in 1988 and currently serves as an adjunct associate professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Piotr, welcome to what we learned today. Thank you. So your background was in physics and advanced signal processing. Mathematical modeling methods have arisen from that background. Please explain what these are and how they correlate with your research focus in the areas of computational neuroscience and biomedical signal processing. Yes, so as you probably know, physics is dealing with a lot of signals and very complex systems. So when I was studying physics, I, I learned a lot of the methods which were for analyzing uh, difficult signals measured in different environments and also how to create the models using the mathematics and mathematical approaches. And then I got interested in a little more in the biology and how human brain is very complex system and also we can measure things from human brain. It's electroencephalography, EG. And I just uh, thought that we, if we apply some of these methods, which I learned from physics, to analyze very difficult signals and find out what information is there, it would be useful to understand how brain works. And that actually led also to trying to create some models of how brain works and modeling using uh, the knowledge which we have from physics, chemistry, biology, how neurons work. That's exactly how I came up to this computational neuroscience. Your educational background was devoted to the application of advanced signal processing and mathematical modeling methods to investigation of brain activity. So are you still conducting research in these areas? Yes, that's exactly what I mentioned. That I started it a long time ago, 30 years ago. My PhD thesis was already on brain modeling. But then I moved, uh, especially when I moved to the United States at the University of Maryland and, and uh, Hopkins, I started doing some of this modeling and applying of this signal processing to brain uh, signals in patients, mostly with epilepsy. But when I moved already nine and a half years ago, to ARL, I started also applying these methods to healthy people, especially soldiers, and see how this knowledge about how brain works and how we can model it can actually help us in understanding, you know, soldiers' fatigue, how their performance can be actually improved by maybe influencing brain in some way, because we can not only record things from the brain, but we can also stimulate brain. For example, in case of epilepsy, we can stimulate brain to prevent epileptic seizures. In case of healthy people, actually, there is work 
which is done in, in different places, on how to improve, for example, memory or, or learning or this kind of thing. And also, so it's not only performance, like we always think about physical performance in soldiers, mm-hmm. but actually also cognitive performance. It means how you can absorb more information, how you can perform better under stress. And all of this, uh, you can first analyze what we are trying also to do in HRED with modeling some of the brain activity and seeing how different signals uh, reflect what is happening in brain, how if it is fatigued or stressful. And also we can try to see if we will put some kind of the stimulation from outside, how it affects this brain. And it might be helpful But actually, sometimes we also see how things which soldiers, unfortunately, have to endure, like, for example, blasts or other things, which cause, as you know, some of the PTSD effects later. That's exactly also what we are looking for. And sometimes in models, how different blasts affect the brain. And even if you cannot see it with traditional methods of imaging, the damage, it can actually make more subtle differences which we can maybe diagnose earlier and help the soldiers earlier in overcoming this this kind of effects. You're widely known for introducing mathematical and physical approaches to investigations of the brain in clinical sciences. Can you please tell me more about the success of this effort? One of the new things when I started working in the early 90s in the University of Maryland, it is not many people from background, from physics or mathematics that were actually working in clinical departments at schools of medicine. And actually interaction between physicians and and people with this kind of the background actually led to completely new look for diseases like epilepsy, for example, that you have seizures, but actually the seizures are not permanent. You are getting them from time to time. You might actually try to prevent them or predict them at least. So uh, as you know, this is debilitating disease in the sense that actually a patient never know when he will or she will get a seizure. And during seizure, they cannot drive, obviously. they cannot do. But, so in this case, people who are diagnosed with epilepsy cannot drive at all. But on the other hand, they get seizures maybe once per week or once per month. So one of the things which we introduced with other people like this, we created some international workshops on seizure prediction action when there was a mix of uh, physicians and uh, physicists and mathematicians. And we developed some of the methods which are right now used, especially actually very well known uh, cases uh, with implanted, right now, implanted devices in the brain which can detect when the seizure is coming and actually prevent seizure coming. And clinical trials were done in Johns Hopkins, uh, among other things, during uh, my tenure there. The companies like Neuropace and Metronic, these are kind of devices which help epileptic patients to actually get, even prevent their seizures. Especially there is a lot of data right now who actually show that the person who had several seizures per day with these devices implanted 
they have no seizures, or at least the frequency of seizures is like one per month instead of several per day. So this is the kind of things which was possible when we introduced some of the methods exactly from physics and mathematics and electrical stimulation in addition to the traditional drugs which are based on more on the biochemistry and have also very significant side effects. So this is one of the things which I introduce among other people with my background to clinical practice, and that's what I am proud of. <laughs> you touched on this earlier. How can basic research in neuroscience, especially computational neuroscience, benefit the soldier? Yes. So, so as I mentioned, it's, it's also the, the thing which is interacting between what we already did and can do in civilian population, but also the same in soldiers. Obviously, this is the things when we can understand better what is happening in brain during different situations and different kind of injuries even. And then we may actually devise some methods which are not always you know, traditional based on, on some kind of drugs and medicine, but maybe are on something which is, as I say, more aligned with my physical background in the sense that we can actually have a magnetic or, or electric stimulation, for example, which affects, as I mentioned, epilepsy, but it can affect also memory, retention and fatigue and this kind of things, which will be obviously beneficial to soldiers who are under constant almost stress. They need to perform, and especially in the current and future battlefield, they will have much more cognitive load in the sense of absorbing information, dealing with more complex situation, and even interacting with more smart equipment, <laughs> you know, AI, drones, and other things which will, moving forward, will actually have more of the uh, capability to, to do something autonomously and interact with uh, things. So actually, this neuroscience works on both sides. It means actually it can help soldiers in such more complex situation. Uh, uh, on the other hand, it actually may lead to some of the new developments in artificial networks and artificial systems. So what's the relationship between neuroscience and artificial intelligence? What is that all about? So not many people probably working right now in artificial intelligence know that most of the current neural networks, uh, which are the uh, convolutional neural networks, you know, the name neural networks actually came exactly from our neural networks. And these are artificial neural networks, but they are based on research which was done in neuroscience in 20th century. Actually, some of the ideas for the current deep learning networks were based on some research in visual cortex of cats, actually, in 1960s. Hubble and Weasel got Nobel Prize for this research in 1980. And so this is relatively old uh, neuroscience knowledge uh, when actually computers catch up and we have much more resources, we were able to start to implement similar neural networks artificially in the system. So basically what we know now, and it's very much used in every area, is basically something which was based on this neuroscience understanding of how our visual cortex works in mid 20th century. 
And obviously, right now, we are related to this AI, what we call AI and machine learning is based, as I mentioned, mostly on visual cortex. And if it is just visual cortex, it's great for images. But for example, ARMY and, and even in civilian work, the one application which people are trying is autonomous vehicles, okay? It's obviously that the visual analysis is important, but our brain has actually different parts of our brain is dealing with navigation, with spatial orientation, with this kind of thing, and they have different structure. And neuroscience is analyzing it now. So I am thinking that the future of AI will be that we will actually go into different parts of the brain, see how our brains or even mammals or other animals are working, and then learn from this, that we already are learning this, and transfer it for the future AI, which will be much more robust than the current ones, which is, as I say, based only on very small parts, not small, but one part of, of our brains. So if we will use knowledge from neuroscience about the systems which deal with navigation, probably that would be much better AI for autonomous cars and vehicles than current approaches, which are based on completely different systems. What inspired your passion for neuroscience? Yes, so I was always, even in high school, I was actually not very interested in biology. I was interested in physics and mathematics. But then when I started studying physics, I actually noticed that, uh, you know, there are things which are very narrow. So it, in the sense, when I was in the middle of my studies after three years in Polish system, it was equivalent of, of the bachelor degree in physics. I actually decided that if I would specialize in the narrow uh, physics, I would become a specialist of one particle, maybe, okay, <laughs> or something like this, because it's going narrower and narrower. On the other hand, as the methods of physics are underused in other areas, in biology and medicine. At University of Warsaw, that was the time when they started exactly the program, which was called Education of Physics and Mathematics to Biology and Medicine. And it, it immediately interested me because I exactly seen that some of the methods which physics applied, I can apply to brain. Okay, how we are thinking, how, how it works. And that's exactly when I started to doing this and my PhD was already with modeling of brain and, and measuring of the things which are happening in brain and basically so for me, it's much broader, not so narrow. You can actually understand more things. You can apply, apply this kind of the strict mathematical and physical methods to this and came up with solutions. Multi-domain operations is the Army's newest way to fight and win in the future. How does neuroscience and neural research fit into this? Exactly this, especially when we are talking about multi-domain, it means that we will have not only army, but navy, you know, air force and other things. So the one thing is that the people with different kind of backgrounds and different approach to a soft potion have to work together. Okay, on the other hand, they have to work also with this autonomous vehicles. Uh, a lot of, of other AI-based machines, equipment and other things. And in this case, our brain accepts 
and work in much more complex situations. So right now we have to understand exactly how people are working now in teams which are composed with different kinds of personalities. This is actually transport to civilian work too. And then how this kind of teams also work with automated equipment, the, the relation between the in the future, and especially in DO, will be not like operator and the machine, okay? Like you always say, that, that we will train soldiers to operate this machine, we will design this machine and give it to, to soldiers. And exactly the neuroscience is the part of this because we are understanding both how the future AI will work, but also how the people have to adapt and work with this new environment and new situation. So this is exactly the basic research is now going into it, how our brain and we can adapt to this very complex and new situation and how to improve this adaptation, but different methods of training. And as I mentioned, some of this might actually involve some stimulation, for example, of brain or some hiding of the brain. Or in the further future, there will be also augmentation. So it means that you will have some devices which might be wearable or actually even implanted, which will help you both to communicate, adapt in this large, complex environment. Across the Army, there are fewer than 40 senior research scientists, known as STs, who serve as general officer equivalents, advising leadership on science matters. What do you see as the best practice for the ST community as a whole? Okay, so I think STs provide the independent advice. As you said, we're relatively few. On the other hand, we don't usually have a supervisory positions. We are not really involved in funding decisions or, or this kind of thing directly. So we have to concentrate on science and exactly give the unbiased uh, advice to, to leaders who are deciding about the future funding, future directions of the science in the army and what will be important for the future army. So, and we are actually working toward there because especially after AFC got, you know, created, we are consulting AFC leaders. And actually right now we are in the process because of the pandemic, it was not, not really put forward very fast, but in a more formal and more frequent kind of panel discussions about the future science for AFC. AFC meaning Army Futures yeah, Command. Army Future. Yeah, yeah, Army Future Command. And uh, we have a slightly different, different roles. Some of us actually are chief scientists at some point. So anyway, uh, but my role, I think, is definitely because of my background, uh, you know, when I was at university and as you know, especially in medical schools and other, I, I am trying to approach it exactly from the point, pure point of science and other STs helped me in recognizing some of the more military relevant things. We, uh, we are not external academics. We are not uh, connected directly to industry. We, we are basically this independent body 
which can provide this information to army and actually make it stronger because the point is that we we are not biased toward a particular industry or particular academic work or other things. We are definitely concentrated on army and we can provide from the scientific point of view what would be the best without biases which some of the outside experts might uh, go to the army. On the other hand, because we are sort of uh, you know, we are different, but we have all enough of the expertise to actually see how different, uh, you know, areas of the science and the different directions of the science can help in fulfilling the army needs. How do you think we're doing making new discoveries, pushing the boundaries of science and technology for future American soldiers? So I think the one thing in my role, especially in HRAT and actually in everything which is related to human, is actually trying to do the similar thing which I did when I was in School of Medicine. It means to try to bring people with different expertise, with different background, and apply it to, to relevant scientific and technological problems of future soldiers. And that's that's not limited to neuroscience, as my people say, but as you know, with my background, it's, it's mostly multidisciplinary. So in the sense, it's how all of these things which we learn from physics, mathematics, and AI, computer science, can we can apply to human performance and improve the soldier performance both by improving their resilience, but also how we can augment their performance by using the advanced technologies and devices. Great. Okay. Here's a bonus question I have for you. So, (laughs) are you a fan of Gene Roddenberry? Yes. uh, I am a fan of all of the science fiction, actually, and I, I, I see a lot of the things which even when I was still in high school in Poland, I was reading a lot of science fiction literature. I didn't have opportunity to watch Star Trek at that time, <laughs> so I didn't know Ginger at that time, only after I came to the United States. But, but it was always fascinating me from the, the reading the different science fiction authors how the future will look, you know, so it's not limited to interstellar travel, okay, <laughs> but actually some of the things which we already seen in Star Trek, like, you know, communicators, okay, we have now smartphones everywhere, <laughs> all of these communicators, and I think some of the things which are in the future in Star Trek, like universal translator, you know, mm-hmm. that there is something which everybody has this universal translator and they can communicate between different races and different things. And I think something like this is actually coming very quickly uh, here, exactly with the advances both of neuroscience and electronics and the micro devices, that that's not so far in the future because we obviously already have a Google translator. So we already have some kind of uh, algorithms to do it, more advances and miniaturization. We can actually maybe have it even implanted Mm-hmm. And and we can talk to somebody who is speaking different language, and and understand it 
immediately without e even the formal translation because this work in neuroscience might actually allow us to connect directly to the areas of our language speech and we will hear it as our own language. But that's exactly some of the things which I think are science fiction is just giving us some ideas. And then when we are going into science and doing some of this research, we basically follow it and try to make it happen. <laughs> and I think a lot of this was also under my going into into science and especially this kind of science. So last question on anything Star Trek. So you've watched enough episodes to know, was your favorite Captain Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard? <laughs> okay, as I mentioned to you, <laughs> because I came to United States late and I didn't see original initial. Oh. So I came up when there was already Captain Picard. I later yes. actually learned about the Captain Kirk. <laughs> so, he was yeah. the best. John was Picard, <laughs> yeah. the best. Yes, so for well, me, Picard. <laughs> good for you. Same for me. What are some of your latest scientific efforts? Okay, so once again, uh, it's continuation, in fact, of this, what I was talking about. So right now, we are trying both to increase capacity of the modeling of the brain. Uh, we are trying to do it in larger computers with the uh, possibility of doing much larger neurons. We were doing uh, a larger number of neurons. We were doing it, our latest paper from last year was already on hundreds of millions of neurons, but actually it's still far from, from our brain and we are going into high-density computing resources in CISD and trying exactly to implement our biologically correct cortical neuron. On the other hand, we are working with some mathematicians on new methods of machine learning, which will actually take into account learning neural networks, and we would like to actually move into something, especially in, in spatial orientation and navigation, into something which will be better for navigation than the current AI application, but it's based exactly on this kind of modeling for our navigation. Dr. Piotr Franaschuk, the Army's Senior Research Scientist for Soldier Performance Neuroscience. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you, and it was a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us for what we learned today. In upcoming episodes, we'll continue the discussion about the underpinning research that will build the Army of the future. Please consider liking and subscribing. Science is a journey of discovery, and we're glad you're along for the ride. For the Army Research Lab, I'm Tracy Dean.